Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, hello. Welcome to Jules Says. I'm Jules, Julie. I had the loveliest chat with a very caring, intelligent, creative young woman about all kinds of things. And we did try to focus. I think I have enough for a completely separate episode if I want to. We had a hard time staying on track. All of her opinions and mine are just ours. Always remember that. I was going to record a nice introduction, but it's a long one, so let's just jump into it. Please welcome today's guest, Sonny Guest. Sonny, thank you <laughs> yes. so much for joining Jules Says. I'm really excited to have you on. I've I wanted I'm to have you so on excited. for a while. Yeah, I was I was so excited to see like I'd been meaning to check out your stuff for like quite some time and then you you released your Christmas album and I was like I need to have a Christmas party just so I can play this. Oh, have <laughs> you mean, heard any of it yet though? <laughs> I think I listened briefly to one song and I was like this is just about what I expect from a Christmas album. This is what we deserve. It's, you know, I hope it's, it's racy and funny and crude. It's definitely it. racy and crude, but anyway, thank you for listening. <laughs> I follow you on Instagram. We first met on a film set. Yes. And that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea whatever happened with that film. but I, I don't know. Okay. You don't either? I thought Into maybe. The ether. Into the ether, I think. Okay. Because, well, we might as well talk about it since we're talking about it. <laughs> I was actually thinking, I wonder if they hated my performance so much that they reshot the scenes because I've been trying to find out, has it screened? Is it finished? Is it still editing? And that was what, mm -hmm. a year and a half ago? Yeah. And just, and just for context, like the film that we met on, like it's like a modern twist on a biblical story. And the kind of like spark notes for that is like, usually when people use material like a biblical story, it's because it's free to use. There's no one you have to ask for rights for stuff like that. So yeah. that already at times can kind of be an indication that maybe this isn't the highest budget thing at times, not always, but it was a film where you played like my, my very vicious Yes. Almost stepmother, like my love interests, like mother-in-law to be, maybe yes. potential mother-in-law to be. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I remember it. Okay, that could not have possibly been the case because I remember <laughs> you were so warm and welcome, and just like such a wonderful person to be around. Like I loved working with you, oh. and then as soon as we started rolling. I was instantly afraid of you. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's such a compliment. I was so scared. I was like, whoa, he's really digging it. Which is good. That was what the character was supposed to do. And it was lovely working with you. Yeah. But you know, a lot of actors Likewise. are really just themselves. And mm -hmm. I like to think that I can sometimes not just play myself. But anyway, yeah. enough about that. Mm -hmm. The only reason I brought set. that up yeah. is because you you have a sociology background, you mm -hmm. said. You, you've got your hands in a lot of different things. You're acting, you're making really interesting fashion, an activist. You have a lot going on. And That's I'm so, so impressed with 
your energy and your passion for all of these things. And I know it's not easy. You're young. Financially, it can't be easy. And the pandemic had to be challenging. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I really appreciate your time. You're a very talented, intelligent young woman, (laughs) and you think very carefully about things. Thank you. I do. I do. I do do that. You have an interesting background, and you mentioned this to me, I think, when we were on set, that you were adopted from Mm -hmm. another country, Mm -hmm. and you grew up in Oakville. I did, yes. I'm interested in that background. Where were you (laughs) adopted from? For sure. Um, and then also, I'm also just a little, little note as well. I don't want to be categorized as an activist per se. I think digital activism is, is certainly a part of everything that we do these days. There is kind of like a lot more urgency and expectation on people to maybe to stand for something or to like at least have a commentary going on when there is some kind of social, socio-political human rights thing going on. But what the important distinction for me <laughs> is that I, I have, in a, more, in a much more negative scenario, been called, quote unquote, the worst activist someone has ever met. Oh my and God. I was just, it was, it was a, honestly, now that there's distance from it, it was very funny. But the key uh. thing is that, like, for example, myself versus you know, someone who does this as like their actual life work and stuff, there is actually a large distinction between someone like myself who would weigh in on social matters and speak my mind on those things. And then somebody who does this professionally and who actually Mm -hmm. is because there's very rigorous like fact checking involved. There's like, you know, checking your sources, taking your time is a very big part of that as well. Because um, like you said, new new information is unfolding all the time. So therefore, we have to be very careful with the way that we the way that we support things and stuff, especially in the age of information, I find, which I don't even want to call this the age of science. I think it was called the age of science at some point, but I think it's just information because there is just as much truth out there as there is just absolute bullshit. That That's an important one that I just wanted to work in there just in case because it's like I, oh, yes. I am not professional by any, by any means. Well, and I think one of the problems too is people mm-hmm. expect everyone to voice mm-hmm. their opinion out there. Whereas way back in the olden days when I was young, it was acceptable to just keep your mouth shut and not talk about things. So in uh, yeah, activist was probably the wrong word. You're the kind of person who cares about people and is not afraid to speak your mind when you mm. see an injustice. So pretty important, yeah. Especially yeah. when it comes to you know, and this is probably going to be the 2023 word of the year, but algorithm. <laughs> it's like that's all you're ever hearing about lately, and I think that especially in a time now where the flow of information is. Uh, not that it's very different from other times in general, because I, I just think that now that information is largely controlled by crowds. It's like if something is quote unquote trending or if something is getting pushed to the top of certain social media stacks, then it becomes more and more perceived as truth. So I, I don't really think that this is any more dangerous of a time to live in in terms of controlling the flow of information and information access because for example let's just say you know during one of one of the world wars or the great war propaganda still existed yeah and then you know there were lots of people who existed in their own social bubbles in terms of what they were getting in terms of flow of information and stuff so mm-hmm. it's like the only difference now is that you kind of have your buffet of where you want to pick to kind of like consume yeah. but in much the same way, though, your, your information is still being kind of manipulated by your social circle, but your social circle isn't necessarily geographical anymore. It's just that it's up in the ether. <laughs> like it's That's up in, true. So it's not, it's not quite that much any different. Oh, man, I'm, I don't even remember where I was getting off with that. Off well, that. we were <laughs> kind of talking about the difference between activism and just getting all oh, kinds yes. of information socially. Yes, and, that. You know, yeah. Of course, in the olden days, we were more in a bubble because we had the newspaper and we had the evening news if we chose to watch it. Yes. So we weren't constantly inundated with information Mm -hmm. that our brains now have to sift through and try and figure out what makes sense. Mm -hmm. But you're right. The algorithms are feeding you what they Mm -hmm. think you want to see. Yeah. 
It's and a, if you don't have tracking off and stuff like that, and if you don't have safe browsing on, or if you don't view things like I always use private browsers, period, mm-hmm. unless it's something like regular that I have to check like actors access or like, you know, like my IATSE portal where I like go and do crew work and stuff for productions. Those two things I do need to check regularly, almost daily. Well, at least I should be checking daily. Yeah. Uh, but uh, If you're a lot busier than me in terms of those two like areas, um, then yeah, you'll be checking more than once a day. But yeah, I usually have my private browsing on just to just to kind of like stop them from trying to sell me stuff all the time. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, it's a lot. I I'll get back to your thing about. <laughs> I, it's okay. This, I'm sure people resonate uh-huh. with this. I'm old. I think it's interesting hearing the perspective of someone mm-hmm. young who's out there in the world thinking about all this stuff. This is uh, actually, yeah. This is this is probably a good time for me to to explain like my background then because. The point that I'm going to make that is going to be very relevant to my background story is that I did not even know how much I didn't know until I kind of moved away from Oakville where I grew up. And until even after I completed university, I went to University of Guelph. And this is like a, it's so funny what you tend to remember about social interactions, but like this conversation will haunt me forever because I just look back on it and I just think, what? person like who was I but um I remember being at a party I think it might have been at my house or something I don't know it was in university so it was a party and then I remember someone like one of our friends had started talking about something to do with racism and they were getting into like a deep discussion about that with someone at the party and I remember specifically turning to a guy that I was talking to like, I don't think I was, I was really talking to him. I think we were kind of part of the conversation. And then we clearly started to begin to feel a little bit alienated. We were like, oh, whoa, race. Okay. Which mm-hmm. is like kind of like the typical reaction if you're not familiar with diving into these topics. But I remember turning to him and we both kind of gave each other a look, just kind of scratching our heads like, well, this took a turn. And then I just, I remember turning to him and being like, you know, not everything is about race. And and I'm black. Yeah. <laughs> I'm biracial. So and that just goes to show how much how much like grace and how much of a necessity it is to like allow each other to make mistakes and to understand that there will always be growth because if for example, let's just say, you know, if you never let anybody not not never let anybody, but if we operate in a system where if you make a mistake and if you misspeak and if you don't carry a very correct perception of a situation, especially when it comes to race, if you do not allow people to come back from that and to learn, and if you don't foster an environment where you can be like, this is a slightly ignorant statement to make for a couple of reasons. I don't feel that it's really my responsibility to educate you on this matter, but I think that there are some big points to this that you are missing. If we can't neutrally say that to each other, and if we can't neutrally accept that, then where are we really going to go from there Yeah, in terms of, you know, just reevaluating our own beliefs and stuff. And the trouble with it is that so much of it is uh, subconscious and so much of, so much of it is just so deeply ingrained in like the fabric of our society that at times it can feel like people are making everything about race. But once you educate yourself enough, then that feeling very quickly goes away. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my experience in, especially in the last couple of years of my 20s, I would say from probably 25 onwards. Because like for me, like I, I grew up, at first I was adopted when I was about 18 months or so. Um, it was just a baby. I was adopted from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And the family and the care from which I was being adopted from, I'd been removed from my biological family and I was placed in an orphanage. And there were a lot of medical complications that happened in that time from me kind of joining the orphanage and like me being in my biological family's care and stuff. And a lot of that was due to uh, like in poor countries, sometimes they'll feed um, children just a mix of flour and water just to help satiate the hunger. But unfortunately, what that causes is infants aren't supposed to ingest things like that at such a young age, it can really damage their their digestive tract. Mm-hmm. So I ended up developing a wheat allergy, which was classified as celiac disease. Mm-hmm. So, but I was constantly being fed, but I was getting sicker and sicker until until there was some 
very lucky medical intervention. Yeah. Like someone and if you have celiac disease, you're not even absorbing anything. Yeah. And it was, it was very dangerous. Like I was, they were quite convinced that I was not going to be, that I wasn't going to be fit to be adopted. They were sure that it was a case of failure to thrive, which is basically that, you know, when like, you know, a sentient life is endured so much that they just kind of give up because there's been too much Mm -hmm. trauma. So that was the worry with the case and all of that are happening at the same time. Meanwhile, my parents in the very early nineties, they had already adopted my sister. We are not biological sisters, but we're kind of, we're both from Brazil and we'd come from the same orphanage. So my sister had gone through the phase of being like, I want a baby sister. And then my parents were like, maybe we should. (laughs) So they decided to go ahead with it. And they were looking through the same orphan, like they send out newsletters and stuff. So they're looking through the same orphanage's newsletter and they saw my picture and they said that I looked so much like my sister that they thought we must be biologically related. So they reached out to the orphanage and they were like, we've already adopted, you know, this individual. What, uh, what is this person's story? They look so similar. Are they related? And they were like, no, they're not related. It's two separate families, but she's already in the process of being adopted by an American family. So I was already kind of like, the wheels were already moving for that. But two things kind of happened. My declining health and then also the American family failed to pass part of their background check. So there was something, and I, I don't know what it was. Obviously, that's something that would not ever be disclosed. So I don't know what it was, but something was just not quite happening with that. And then even still, my family was like, okay, we still have a feeling about her. Just please keep us posted about her story. We really just want to know what happens. And so then that's when they updated them about the potential failure to thrive situation. And then my mom like took it upon herself because she was doing a lot of the footwork kind of going through the adoption process. She ended up requesting my medical documents to be sent to our family doctor here in Canada. So she sent those documents to him and kind of around the same, it was almost like the same timing. Both doctors kind of figured out, they were like, got it. You know, celiac. She's just celiac. Take her off that diet immediately. (laughs) They were like, let's fix the poor girl up. So I went from being absolutely like in this picture always like breaks my heart because I have so much. I'm very in touch with like myself as an individual, but then also myself just as an eternal spiritual kind of soul who's just here. So I have so much empathy for my body, my embodied self who went through so much at that time because they had sent my parents a picture of me around Easter and I was just absolute skin and bone. And How it old is were such, you? I think I would have been around 16 months wow. around there. Just absolute, just skin and bone. And it was a really, really, I mean, I grew up seeing those images. So like, you know, I, it wasn't like I saw it, you know, one day and I was like, oh my God, like I did see these images. Like I grew up going through my baby book and looking through the pictures of my foster families and stuff like that uh, and pictures of me in the orphanage. But they sent uh, a message with the picture and they were like, look how healthy she is. Look how well she's doing. My parents were like, what was the case before? And that was that was very, that was obviously very scary for them. And then once they switched my diet, I went from being absolute skin and bone to being obese. <laughs> so, okay. They had, they, they had, I had a lot. You know, <laughs> my youngest daughter mm-hmm. was diagnosed with celiac disease at 11 months. She was down to her four month weight. And when she went on the gluten free diet, she looked like a little Buddha. Yes. It happens so quickly. The body compensates. That mm-hmm. kid at a year would sit down and eat two chicken breasts and a potato and a pile of vegetables. I mean, <laughs> a lot so of catching up to do. God, they figured yeah. it out. Yeah, because I would have been, I would have been done. And then there was even still like, there was even still so much after that because I was finally getting my weight up and I was doing so much better and stuff. They were trying to help me. Like I was very lethargic because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you go from two extremes and on top of that, you're trying to grow a body. So it was like. And you had to be emotionally traumatized as well. Yeah. You and know. it was, and I did on, I think it was, it was sometime in my mid twenties. I think it was 24 or so, but ar- around when I was 24, on Mother's Day, my mom 
had told myself and my sister, she was like, okay, guys. And she had always, she had always said this though. She had been like, okay, if you ever want to read your adoption files, like I have all this information. It's, I have all of it. It's just, you know, I just need to put it in order and stuff and I'll get you like a nice little binder and stuff. I'm like forever grateful that she made such a point of reminding me that that information was accessible and just like the care that she treated that information with and just reminding me and my sister like yeah like we can pick out a binder color or you you know you can you can do this like we can put it together nicely like this we can go through the pages together it could be an activity you know just like very gently trying to like normalize and you know trying That's to coax like learning she sounds oh, yeah. like she's an best. amazing woman oh she is oh yeah she's look how many people have <laughs> figure it out and then they have to go on a secret quest yeah or your family like god forbid in this this must be so di- like I can't even imagine how difficult it would be for a child to start asking questions and for the parents or parents or caregivers, you know, who whoever, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have to shoulder if they were not receptive or mm-hmm. if they had kind of adverse reactions or at worst like if they became volatile around the whole subject and like I have heard stories of that and it does seem that my family is kind of an anomaly in some ways, which, you know, I hope that's not the case. It's just within my circle of people that I've met. I've heard, and and there were families that we spent lots of time with growing up, you know, especially before age 12, like we would go to Brazilian picnics where they would, we would have a reunion with all people who had been adopted from this agency. And there was lots of socialization with me and the Brazilian kids. And it was a whole thing. And we did it every summer and we'd go, we'd drive down to Pennsylvania and we had lots of very close friends and their stories were great too. Not to say that anybody that I've met or have been connected with, not to say that any of their family have treated them poorly or anything like that. And every family is unique. Of course, everybody has their kind of like hidden kind of stuff. Everyone Mm -hmm. has their family secrets and everybody has their pain points with their family as well. And I'm by no means calling their family perfect at all. There are some stories that I've heard that have been very sad, but, you know, thankfully the ones that I was socialized with, especially between up to like age 12, like those families that we stayed really connected with, it was a very positive experience for them as well. It was just kind of as I got older and I started meeting a lot more people who were younger than me, which is weird. It's like, maybe it's just that when you're kind of under 25, maybe it's just that you don't really socialize all that much with people that are younger than you. You're kind of concerned about your group. But even from 24 onwards, I started meeting a lot more and speaking with a lot more people who were like younger than me. And I did meet quite a few people who were, who who had been adopted. And I also used to work for a travel company called S trip as well. Mm -hmm. And we would take students away on vacation and stuff. And it's a whole, that company was interesting. You you can look them up. You'll see quite a bit about them. (laughs) (laughs) Questionable, questionable at best at times, but you know, whatever it was, it was what it was. It was cool at the time, but I did meet, a couple students here and there where they did not have the same experience as me. And that was downright heartbreaking mm-hmm. to have to hear and to kind of like have these kids who they feel like kids when, when you're 24 and they're like, you know, 18, they, they do feel like kids, mm-hmm. but to have these kids come up to you and be like, how do you ask your mom that you want to know about your real mom and then it's just like first of all you have to break down the whole okay like you don't say real mom yeah (laughs) because the one who loves for you takes care of you and like you know is there for you the one who the one who is present and there with you that is your real mom like it's it's biological it's your Mm -hmm. biological mother um you can say that to, to have to break down that language first and then to also have to kind of help them navigate these dynamics that i couldn't possibly understand because it's like I'm not in your shoes. I don't I don't know. It's yeah. like I, I don't I don't know how you talk to your mom. You can approach it with curiosity. You can say, you know, like I love you so much and like I just want to know I just want to know more about my past and this has nothing to do with our bond. Like that's always going to be there. And like you would think that if you had gone the route of adoption as well, you would think that maybe you would be a little more emotionally prepared for those questions too. You would think it would be part of the counseling process to adopt. 
And even still, like counseling, as we're all kind of coming to realize, I think as collective, is a lifelong thing that is very necessary. And that is just yeah. as essential as your annual physical. Yeah, but just most as- of us don't have access to it. No. And and that's what's that's what makes it so hard. So like that feat of constant self-improvement and assessment and everything like that, especially being a parent and it's like all that is so necessary. But yeah, it was pretty wild to meet people who I, I had not had that experience before of speaking with someone who had had a negative experience with that. And I was just like, I was kind of at a loss for words for a time. Um, and then we did keep in touch and stuff like that. And it was just really, it was really beautiful to like hear from them later on and touch base with them and be like, yeah, like this is what I'm doing with my life. This is my relationship with me and my parents now and all this. And then I even met like adults who had, uh, I remember there was a person in my class in elementary school whose parents had been adopted and she had really suffered at their hands. And it was, I remember I always found it so kind of like strange that she was- adoptive parents' hands? Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. And I remember finding it so strange that her and her husband and her family were so- they were just so kind with how much they were checking in, being like, so your parents treat you well, like you feel mm. you feel good, you feel safe, like that kind of stuff. And then me just being a kid, I'm just like, yeah, like my parents are good. Um, they don't let me watch as much TV as I want. Like I'm not allowed to do this. Is this something I can tell you? Can you fix this? And I'm like, <laughs> of course. Just, like are you telling, ma'am, are you telling me? that I can tell you to tell them <laughs> to give me more time like on my Xbox and it's like no that's not that's not at all it's like she was literally just she this individual had had this experience and it was, it was something that she was like desperately doing her diligence to make sure that these two little girls that she'd met were safe and cared for and everything but yeah it was um it's always interesting. And and like when I did read my file that, that Mother's Day, I, w- I was so grateful because I think that my mom kind of just knew that it was time. Yeah. And we'd always kind of just been like, yeah, we'll read it one day. And then she was probably just sitting there being like, one day, huh? Okay. Well, <laughs> how about how about Mother's Day? How about, and then we're like, yeah, if we have time. And she's like, oh, we can make time. And wow. it's like, okay, I'll see you then. <laughs> How did you I'll feel when that. you read it though? Were you were there any revelations? Did you feel some- It was very emotional. It, yeah. I was going to say you may have yeah. felt things that surprised you. Yeah. And it was I found that very true to who I was. Like it's funny because people change every day. People change all the time, but in a way you really kind of do stay the same. And like I remember one of my earliest memories is when I remember like I got this trophy from the soccer tournament and my dad, like we were going to get it, the plaque part engraved to get my name on it. Like it was like a big one. It was like a gold medal. It was really wow. cool. And then me I and my know dad you were, were also a soccer player. Oh yeah. I played, <laughs> I played on the very first all-star league, which is the oh, league my gosh. just below rep. Oh my God. <laughs> I was an, I only played for like a year. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but years. you want a trophy. So you're on your I way did. to get the engraving. So I'm on the way I'm on the way to get the engraving and then my dad was stepping out of the car and then he like accidentally knocked it over and it fell onto like the parking lot and then it got dented and he was so upset he was like he's like oh god he's like okay I'm well you know that's that and he was just so upset and I was like dad it's okay I was like it's just a trophy yeah. I was like it's cool it's fine. And like very true to that same person that I was then when I was reading my book and reading my story and kind of going through everything, all the details of the condition I was in when I was found, how I kind of like finding out more of the intricate details, what my birth family was like, their demeanor, the kind of interactions that they had had with the orphanage that I was placed in. I remember I I was obviously like really emotional, like I was sad, like I was holding back tears, you know, all that. And then baby, um, you went through that. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's also the part of me that is very aware that I'm sitting across from my mother. Yeah. And it's like, 
Her pain is my pain. My pain is her pain. Oh. We're all just in pain over here. <laughs> but I don't know if a lot of people realize how much their pain is also their mother's pain. For you to say that means a lot to me as oh. a mom. Because we love our children more than life itself. And then they grow up and they make choices and they run into challenges that we can't fix for them. Yeah. And you can't. Um, no. And I'm realizing that so much more as like as I get older and as my like adult brain kind of finishes the vast majority of like weaving and connecting and like, you know, solidifying and bonding and like all this stuff, like the more and more distance I gain from my childhood, the more and more I've come to see my parents just as people and just as who who they are as individuals. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know around what time in my life it was that I figured it out, but I think I was like maybe like around 20 when I realized I was like, wait a second. I was like, moms and dads aren't just people who have figured something out or like know something that I don't know. I was like, oh my God, these are literally just children who had to grow up. Yeah. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> And it was like the very slow realization of all the things that you put them through. And it's just, but then you have to have so much empathy for yourself because it's, yes. well, it's, it's your, it's your job to be a child and yes. all they can do is the best with what they have. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So sitting across from my mom reading that, and I think I very badly, very, very badly tried to make light and kind of make a joke. Like it was, it was not, it wasn't funny really at all. And I was just kind of like, a, ah, well, you know, this is, well, this chick was crazy. And then, yeah. um, you know, referring to I think to like that's a natural coping mechanism. Definitely. Yeah. And then I was just kind of like... Yeah, this chick, she's uh, she's kind of nuts. And then uh, my mom was very calmly. She was just so you think that she's like, I see you're laughing. Is this is it funny that she that that this is what happened kind of thing? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, uh, a little bit because I think if if I were in the same position, I probably would have, you know. And then I was like, okay, no, no, I I just think it's a little messed up. But yeah, and it was really tough to sit there and like bear witness to what already lived in my body, what had already happened. And then to read the account of what had happened was, it was just so many mixed emotions. It was like being disturbed. It was being afraid. It was being angry. It was being like frustrated <laughs> and feeling kind of like, you know, some pieces were kind of coming together, but not really so much though. I think it was more so just a time that I just really needed to look at something that I had no control over, that there was no way to positively spin some of the things that I had read. There was nothing to do or say or think about it except for just processing, yeah. except for just reading, reading it through. And you know, of course, my mom wanted to do this for me. And I think I remember like realizing that I was like, okay, well, part of my processing, the parts that I can process and that I will process, this is for me. And also this is for you. 
because this is part of my story. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to come to terms with this. And as a mom, you know, like they, you can, you can lead me there and everything. And it's like, yeah. you're, you're extending kind of like an opportunity for me to work through this. And it's, it was something very difficult. And me and my yeah. sister, one of us came in the early afternoon. The other one of us came in like, you know, the early evening. And then I remember my sister kind of having her sit down like privately with my mom. And uh, she asked both of us if she was okay, if we were okay with her sharing like different details. She was like, do you want me to tell your sister? Do you want to tell her like, you know, like whatever you want to share with her, like that's up to you. You can do that if you like. Yeah. I did learn some details about my sister as well. And something that kind of changed in me in that day is that there was, there was a time where I was in Toronto like I just moved to Toronto. And then I remember two, two, I was living with two of my best friends who I also actually um, worked with at the same restaurant. So it was like a sitcom. We all lived together. Yeah. We all lived together. It was so fun. And we went to university together. So it was like, it was a difficult time for sure, but it was awesome. Like It was really yeah. great. And there were obviously like, you know, little fights and stuff that happened and everything, but it truly was like a great time. I really loved living with them. But I remember one of my friends had said something and this was after this mother's day so mm-hmm. one of my friends had said something we were just sitting at the table having a conversation she said ba 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 my sister and blah 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 and she kept talking and then i immediately i don't know what kind of like happened to me but i almost disassociated and i just kind of quietly got up from the table and i went to my room and i just burst into tears And I like, I think that was one of my first kind of like experiences with, I should really be more educated on what exactly I could call it. But like, I want to say like a panic attack because Mm -hmm. I just could not, I could not get my thoughts together. I could not get, I was just sobbing. Like I could not. And I think that there was a very large piece of myself that was kind of like waiting to learn this information, but also to like hold space for like my family members who had experienced our entire family dynamic and just all those things that are part of our family story. So it was, it was pretty jarring at first. And then there was a lot of work and thought that I had to put into kind of like remind myself, you know, no matter what has happened to me, to my family, to, to anybody that I love and care for, no matter how bad, of whatever kind of thing has happened in our past. We are here now. We are loved now. Mm-hmm. Like we are safe now. And like we're together now. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was kind of one of those things that I just had to really like practice, just like kind of saying it to myself and just reminding myself and focusing on that. But I can absolutely understand how there may be individuals out there. If you if you aren't at that place where you can process these things or if you do not have these kind of like coping tools and mechanisms like built up in yourself, I just really hope if anybody's listening to this, I just really hope that you give yourself time because I was only 20, I was 24 when I found out, but due to my family's kind of like background and all the things we had been through together, I had spent an extensive amount of time practicing journaling and like self-reflection and all these tools that are so important that they bring to you in therapy. So I had an exceptional toolkit that Mm -hmm. I was already utilizing both instinctively and then also because because I'd been in therapy on a couple occasions before. We we did do therapy at the time. I was younger. I think it was between 12 to 13 when I was in therapy because my dad had he was very ill. He had stage four cancer. Oh but my he, God. He made it. He made it. <laughs> He's the yeah, Iron Man. He's going to outlive all of us. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we did, we did go to therapy to kind of like discuss those feelings and kind of emotions surrounding that experience as well. So I already had experienced it on a level. Mm-hmm. It was very casual, but even still, I still had that tool. So if it's something that you have not come to terms with, or this doesn't even just apply to people who are adopted. Just when you're dealing with really difficult things in your in your own past or in the past of someone who you love, it's not easy. Like sometimes you can't stop that spiral in your brain. And yeah. there's, there's no shame in that. And also 
whenever you can just focus on maybe one coping tool or mechanism that you can use or try and seek it out. And then from there, you know, in the oddest of times, even if you can only manage to do it once, or if you kind of almost bring yourself back to balance, like just once, or if you get really close just once, that's like something that is going to stack over time and it's going to improve over time because you're very slowly building that new pathway in your brain that's going to allow you to like choose a different route if you're faced with that same stress again. I like your strategy of how you were reminding yourself, I'm safe now, I'm well now, I have a loving family now. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us tend to dwell on either trauma or something that's bothering us and we Mm -hmm. lose sight of the good things. Mm-hmm. And it's probably soothing to remind yourself of the good things. Mm-hmm. I I do tend to judge myself quite a bit when I'm not able to remind myself of those positive things or not even just the positive things or just when I'm not able to like effectively use my coping mechanisms mm-hmm. and tools just to get myself to like a better kind of state. So like I'll say that because if it were as easy as just thinking positive. Would would that be, that's not. You could be in denial too and not processing the grief. Yeah. Yes. But another thing is just like, I do tend to judge myself, but then also I just have to remind myself that even if all you can do for yourself is just say to yourself, hey, this is a lot. This is, this is actually something that I had to do today. But what I've been doing is I just write myself little letters in my journal sometimes. And then the one that I wrote to myself today was, hey, I know you're feeling a lot of hot, prickly, uncomfortable emotions and anger, and it feels like shit. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel good. It feels terrible. But just remember, you're not feeling it for no reason. There, There is a reason that you're feeling it. And it's not that people are out to get you. It's just that they are so focused on themselves that they can't understand when something is not fair to you or when or when something is wrong. So just just remember that it's okay. It's okay to feel these emotions. You're not blowing it out of proportion. This is just a symptom of you experiencing your boundaries, not being respected. And it's okay to be upset when they're not. Yeah. So like even if the only thing you can do is just kind of talk yourself down in that way and just say it's okay to be angry. You're not going to feel this way forever, and it's okay to feel this way now. Just Mm -hmm. do your best not to kind of self-sabotage moving forward kind of thing. Yeah, because it's really not easy to remind yourself of all of like the good and happy things, especially if there's multiple issues going on at the same time. Like for myself right now, um, housing insecurity has been a very prominent issue, especially like, no, not only since like, I would say probably 2018, but especially in the past two, three years, it has just been wild. And I've moved more times than mm-hmm. it's just been a lot. And like, when I say the number, I know it's going to be like, how, but I have moved 11 times mm-hmm. since January, 2021. And that was Due to the fact that, well, just a lot of things, but the main thing is that um, housing insecurity and me not having my own space in my own home be clean, be free of pests, to be like organized, welcoming, dealing with those things. If you haven't experienced housing insecurity before, and if you haven't experienced kind of, you know, more unsafe living situations, whether it's due to pests or like, you know, if it's like roommate volatility or like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's like, domestic violence, like God forbid, but these are real things that affect people. And all of those little things really chip away at your tolerance for bullshit. And the more that you are basics on your hierarchy of needs, meaning like, you know, your safety, your Mm -hmm. security, food, water, shelter, that's the bare bones minimum. Mm -hmm. And then you go all the way up in Maslow's hierarchy of needs all the way to like, you know, self-actualization, I think is like the top of the pyramid where you're just you know, you're going beyond. You're you're living in your authentic like life, and I I don't even want to say authentic life. Like you're you're doing so much more with your intelligence and your energy and time. You are doing more than just trying to get by. More yeah. than just trying to make. You're friends. able to focus on fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things that are really going to make you look back. You know, even a month from then, or like two years from then, or, or whenever, and just be like that 
was amazing. Mm -hmm. I am so glad that I experienced this. Or like, wow, this was an unforgettable experience that was positive and I am a better person for it. And this is just like, that was an amazing chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get those feelings from, you know, times that aren't so great, but obviously you don't look back on it with as fond of memories if it, you know, includes things that were more so like threats to your basics, like, Mm -hmm. you know, having a roof over your head. So for me in the past couple of years, I've dealt with a lot in terms of, you know, bumping around a lot, sticking to sublets because, you know, with COVID and everything, everything was as a server and as a creative, you were kind of shit out of luck. There wasn't really much you could do at all. So for me, I was, well, I know that I can't sign up for a lease because I have no idea if I'm going to be allowed to work next week. I have no idea. I have no idea if I'm going to be allowed to work three months from now. So it was very challenging to feel comfortable picking a a place to live. So that just wore me down so much. And there were lots of other things that I was dealing with at the time, kind of in 2021 and up until and including now, that I just have to remind myself that, you know, it's not me being nuts about stuff. It's not me being negative. It's not me being difficult. It's just that I have had enough and my brain and my body is telling me no. Yeah. Not this again, no more, <laughs> not moving again. <laughs> like, well, the last few years have been rough and housing insecurity mm-hmm. is a huge problem and it's not getting any better. No. And it's, it is very intimidating because I've had my own difficulties and issues with the place that I'm even currently in. And this is leaps and bounds better than where I was even a year ago, even two years ago. And I'm really grateful for that. But it's just like, it has been a very, very hard kind of uphill battle. Yeah, I just I just hope that if anybody's listening who is struggling with the more difficult emotions, not even just in terms of being adopted and all that, just anything. It, life is difficult. And the whole attitude of you know, the bootstrap theory of just like, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going. It's like, this is a collectively traumatizing time that we're living in. So it's like, give yourself a little time. Give yourself, like, of course, you know, there are times where you do need to push yourself, but, you know, the difference between screaming at yourself to get up versus letting yourself take baby steps to get back up, there's a big difference. And we don't all come into this world with the same advantages and opportunities. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times the people who preach pull yourself up by your bootstraps don't necessarily recognize the advantages and opportunities that they got a head start with. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. And that was like, so once, once I'd been adopted and everything was like all kind of said and done, it was all good and everything. Yeah, there. Uh, oh, yeah, that was another thing. Another medical thing was uh, because I had yo-yoed so much with my health and everything. They told my parents that I was likely never going to be able to walk. Oh they were like, God. she will likely have special needs for the rest of her life because accessibility needs. Because and yet, you won a soccer trophy. I was at. I know, and I was at <laughs> risk for muscular atrophy because my legs oh were my going God. in like a little bow because Ugh. I was so lethargic from all that that it was. Yeah, and they were like, yeah, she may never walk. She's at high risk. She may be developing muscular atrophy. Yeah, and then I was actually known in my neighborhood for streaking and not just like walking down the street naked, like booking it, running. It's really? like, this is this is a 100-meter dash. Like, she's, What age were you? Oh, I think I was around three. Three-year-olds love to be three. naked. I know. I yeah. I just, I still love to be naked. Well, I If I could, if I could. But society... Puts all these these uh, psychological constraints on our love mm-hmm. of being naked. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that makes me not love being yeah. naked. But three year olds, they don't have that yet. Where would the textile industry be if everyone was just cool with being more nude? Well, that's an entire industry that would. The whole hang up with nudity has. Yeah. <laughs> let's not even get started on that because that goes back that's a whole other thing <laughs> centuries a religious shame and yes yeah, that so is much. A completely that's a other whole story. other one but yeah I was pretty young and my thing was just 
you know, I loved taking my nightgown and throwing it back like over my head and I would pretend that it was my hair and I'd like brush it and stuff. But then I would just like look for the nearest exit that was unlocked because my parents had to lock everything, but I would always figure out how to get out. And then I would just go and then the neighbors would just kind of see me like, They'd be like, oh, when you were little, it was so cute. We used to just see your little butt just running down the street. The wind you on see your, your body. little tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so um, cute. Yeah. So actually, based on that part of my life, like that's how a lot of the neighbors got to know, kind of really got to know like, oh, yeah, there goes Sonny. Everyone on my street knew my name. <laughs> Everyone. Just loved being naked. Um, and they would like kind of like take turns from me home and being like, are you going to get her? Yeah, I'll, I'll get her. I'll get her. Then bring me home, like just very delicately, just with the pointer finger and the middle finger, gently touching my shoulders, being like, okay, let's walk her up to the front door, <laughs> like knock yeah. on the door. My mom would, how? How did she get out? How? And it's like back gate. <laughs> just, I don't know. It's a miracle that I've lasted this long. I, I genuinely cannot believe the number of near death experiences that I've had, not only in infancy. But then in childhood, then young adulthood, and then like my 20s alone, just a whole lot. But um, you could do a whole episode based on that. We should just have um, a monthly series, near-death experiences (laughs) with Sonny, and then we'll do... (laughs) Why are we why are we ashamed of being naked with Sonny? <laughs> we could have a lot of a lot of episodes. So many. So um, what was it like though growing up in Oakville? It was so safe. Yeah. That that is something that I will absolutely credit my parents on is they bought their house at the right time, right place. And it was just such a close-knit neighborhood of people just back when you know, people would hang out like Mm -hmm. on their front lawns and stuff. And then all of a sudden all the parents are out on the front lawns. And then all of a sudden all the kids are out on the front lawns and you're all just like running around. It was very safe. And like, it did not even really hit me. Like I didn't really understand the privilege that I was coming from. And I did not understand a lot of my own subconscious biases that I had for a very long time. And one of my early memories that would have been a nod to, yeah, this is, you are a black woman, a, a black little girl, young woman in a very white kind of, very white kind of world here. But one of them was whenever me and my mom would go shopping, we would check out the hair supplies and stuff like that. And I would see like cool shampoos or, you know, I loved looking at the hair colors. Mm-hmm. I'd just look at the colors, that whole aisle, and I'd be like, ooh, take the little hair pieces and put them on my hair and be like, oh my God, I could have straight blonde hair if I wanted to. Amazing. <laughs> and it's just like, absolutely not. That would fry. Your I was going to say, you could fry it off trying. You, know, you can, you can, <laughs> yeah. you would have ramen for hair if you wanted. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that was not the case, but um, wasn't within my realm of capabilities. But my mom, Every time I would bring a product to her and be like, oh, look, it has straightening. Like, it'll it'll make my hair straight. She'd be like, no, sweetie, that's not for you. Or like, you know, that's kind of what I remember. That's the phrase that I remember was like every time kind of bringing even like a brush. Being like, oh, this is a new cool brush. Well, like, why don't we get this brush? She'd be like, no, that's not that's not for your kind of hair. And then it was just kind of like that constant kind of like being socialized in scenarios where it's like, Everything in the beauty aisle, everything like all that, it was just, no, this isn't for you. Like, this isn't made for people like you. To my mom's credit, like, of course, like, all she was explaining was that this was not appropriate for my hair texture, Mm -hmm. for my skin type. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my skin color, like if it was like a very bright, you know, and teach their own. If you, if you want to wear different kind of colors that aren't typically within your, what works with your complexion, like whatever. But it was just like, you know, you're explaining this to a child as well, yeah, though. Yeah. So like you kind of really got to like bring it down a couple notches, just make it a little more simple. But all she was trying to do was kind of explain to me, no, Sonny, you can't use a smoothing shampoo and your hair, like your hair isn't going to come out straight. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. It's like your hair is like very curly. It's, it's like this. And then she would explain to me like, you know, how hair is more curly than other hair and like how my hair needs more moisture and my hair actually doesn't need a lot of these shampoos and stuff. No, no, no. You need hair oil. You need leave-in conditioner, like that kind of stuff. But because everyone in my family, say for my sister was white, there really wasn't 
anyone in my family that had those same genetics that I could work with to discover how I was going to work with my hair. And like I, from the time of grade nine until I think probably like 23 or so, I straightened my hair religiously. And it was because like, I just, I genuinely did think to myself, I was like, my hair is too crazy when it's curly. I don't know how to deal with it. It is easier if I straighten it because it's more organized and it doesn't get so knotted. And like, it doesn't just blow up out to here, like every time I step outside. And my sister was not like that. Like she wore her hair curly all the time. My sister rarely straightened her hair. There were some times when she would and some periods where she would more, but she's always been proud of her curly hair and she always wore it naturally. But I, we had different kinds of curly hair though. We mm. didn't have the same curl pattern. It, it didn't yeah. look the same way. She could do the same routine on my hair. It would look totally different. Like yeah. my hair is much curlier than hers and hers was a lot softer and a lot tamer. And it was something that I always admired about her. You wear your hair curly all the time. And you don't care if it looks crazy. You don't care if you have to put it in I'm a I'm sure bun. it was gorgeous. Yeah. And and I was just, if it looked crazy, like meaning like, you know, if it had been, you know, a day where you didn't use enough leave-in conditioner or if it was like super dry and wintry out or, you know, maybe it's like day three and your wash day is like in, you know, tomorrow or something like that. Yeah. That was something that I always admired so much about her for being confident enough to do that. And it took me a very long time, but it was kind of around the time when I actually started dating, which was, I was pretty much against relationships until I think it was like university because I was just like, all I'm seeing is my friends getting their hearts absolutely Mm -hmm. just broken to bits. And like, I see the maturity of the people that are within my dating pool. And it's, this isn't it for me. Like I'm very insightful at a very early age. Thank you. That's, that's so sweet. Like, thank you. And also it was, it was, yeah, it just wasn't something that interested me. You know, I don't even want to go down this route because I don't want to have to carry this baggage. I don't want to have to, you know, wonder which parties can I go to? Which parties can I not go to? Who's talking to me now? Because is this group of friends now going to ignore me because I'm no longer dating this person? Like I was like too many too many but issues. Possibly the love in your family that you didn't seek that kind of validation, maybe. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe partly it's just who you are. But I think it's very insightful and mature to look at that in your peers at that age and actually think, nah, that's not for me and I'm not going to do it. Don't we all wish any of our children would just stand back and be a little more cautious? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I admire that. Were most of your friends white? Yeah, I did have mostly white friends. And growing up, I didn't think anything about it. And very consistently, my mom was like, for example, my my diversity and everything in my family was always celebrated. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, once you reach a certain school age, it becomes very difficult to maintain your sense of self in that group because almost all my friends were white. And then like, it wasn't like I was being bullied for my hair. It wasn't, they would tell me like, oh, like, ew, or like, you know, it was never like that. My friends very much so were, they celebrated my, like my diversity as well. They're like, oh, your hair's so cool. Oh my gosh. Like, this is amazing. Like, yeah. look at your cool. Like, oh, I wish my hair did that. That was like a very praised thing. It was just, I didn't feel it because, mm. you know, it's like, I'm, Pun intended. You want to fit I, in at that age. Yeah. And pun intended, I, I'm the black sheep here. It's like, I don't really, <laughs> I'm like, I don't really, I don't feel great about this because um, all you want to do as a kid is just fit in. But yet um, you had this insight about dating and, you know. It didn't last in- long. I'll tell you that much. It lasted, it, it lasted a little bit, but there were two, there were two partners. There was one, oh my God, that was the that was the relationship to end all relationships. It was awful. It was it was around the time right after I graduated university. It was someone that I dated kind of when I was traveling Central America and it was a mess. So that made up for all of it. But thankfully, I did enough. And I always say this about this relationship. If, if anything, I'm so grateful that this relationship happened because I feel like I got all of the drunken relationship arguing 
that I could tolerate in a lifetime out in one relationship, like one fairly brief relationship. So I was like, lesson learned, not going to do that. And I, and to this day, if anyone tries to confront me about something when I've been drinking or when they've been drinking, I'm like, we'll talk about this sober. This isn't the time. This is not going to work because it's like, I, I don't care if it's even, even if it's between friends, I think the most appropriate way. And obviously this is something that has, not always been a service to me, but the best way I feel to kind of go about having difficult conversations is, you know, if you can't see each other face to face, at least have a call because it's very difficult to discern body language and your intent Mm -hmm. for messages. And then also um, if you're doing this while you're intoxicated, it's just like, you're not in your right mind anyway. So it's like, that's not really appropriate. And that's a private matter. It's like, it's really not. And then there's also other influences that could be influencing the scenario as well. I think I got all of that out of my system at that time for sure. But yeah, having having lots of white friends, it did certainly right into university and even after university for a little bit until I made the conscious decision to go to Central America when I made that decision to integrate myself more, you know, like my Hispanic roots and everything. I genuinely did not feel as attractive as my peers. I was like, there there were like always like comments here and there, not typically and not always within my friend group or even my school, not that I can recall, but there were kind of the scenarios of if someone was interested in me or, you know, if there was like a guy that was around, someone would be like, oh, like he's into black girls or like into black chicks. And it's just like, you know, that's, well, don't fetishize me though. Or yeah, fetishize, exactly. Fetishize? Oh, yeah, fetishize you. Fetishize, yeah. fetishize. So yeah. that was kind of like, you know what? But I don't recall that happening very often, but it was just kind of like, it was still mm-hmm. a feeling for me where I was like, you know what? Like, I don't look like these chicks who have tiny little noses and, you know, straight, beautiful hair that doesn't get matted if they leave it natural for like more than like two days. But since then, I have discovered protective styling and leave-in conditioner and oil. And now my I almost never straighten my hair now. Why like, would no? You shouldn't. It's gorgeous. I don't. I You're do gorgeous. At once. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind. Oh, you are um, <laughs> so sweet. I appreciate that. Thank you. I, like I say this because it's tough to grow up in a scenario where. At times you're you're fetishized. I'm probably not pronouncing the, that the correct way, but it's tough to grow up in those scenarios because when you're subconsciously dealing with always like you know white European women mm-hmm. are typically the beauty standard across the board globally. Even in I think I saw a Pakistani beauty campaign or something. It was like the woman that was in the campaign was so fair. And it's just like, excuse me, I've met Pakistanis who are darker than me and they exist. And these women are stunning. And it's Mm -hmm. just like you see the whitewash all across the world where like the beauty standards, always the fair skin. And like you demonize black, you like black is like the black arts, like black. It's Mm -hmm. like that in itself is kind of like a subconscious kind of script. Like it's a societal script that we've all not agreed that we want, but but it exists because it's been built over time. Mm-hmm. So I really felt the effects of that. And it took me a very long time to feel not beautiful about my skin because I've always loved my complexion. I've even in the summers, like I was tanning to get as dark as I could possibly get because yeah. I'm very white for my complexion right now. And I get up to like four shades darker. So I'm very dark in the summer times. And I loved that, but it was not the experience Growing up, though, I didn't feel very attractive, especially not with my curly hair. That was just something where, like, I only really felt attractive if my hair was straightened and if it was behaving. So, yeah. And I would even go so far as to straighten my hair and then curl it with my straightener so that I had curled hair. You know, and then once I traveled more and obviously it was totally impractical to bring a straightener, it was not practical to have straight hair down in like 35 degree, like humid sea air. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I I really started to embrace my hair then. And thankfully I had a string of a couple very good partners and my partner that I'm with now, Dan. There have been multiple men, including my father, in my life who have 
just been like, I will never understand why you straighten your hair or like just being like, you know, can you just leave your hair like this all the time? Please, please, please don't straighten it. Literally begging me not to straighten my hair. And I had lots of very positive male influences in my life, like people that I've loved very much who were very kind to me, who were very good to me. And then something my dad used to do and still does to this day, he is like 70, still does this. He will like go around my hair and then he'll be like, wait, wait, wait. And I'm like, oh my God, what? Oh my God. Is is it a spider? Is it, have you fallen? What is it? And then he'll be like, I found the perfect curl. Don't move. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. She's like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm thinking, I, I don't even know what I'm thinking. I'm so scared. And then he will pick out his favorite curl that he can see. And then he'll be like, okay, we, we have to find your mom. Where's your mom? And then we'll like walk together with my curl in his Aww. hand, like perfection. <laughs> Just show it to her and be like, sweet. beautiful. <laughs> and even though... You grew up with this man. You mm-hmm. felt self-conscious about this. I'm just really, mm-hmm. really glad that you've embraced it, Sonny. Yeah, me too. We need to just accept who we are and stop wishing we were something different. And I need yeah. to take that lesson myself. We've been chatting for over an hour. I think oh my I should gosh, let yeah. you go. Yes. Well, I would love to do this again sometime soon. I I am so glad that we did this. I'm so excited to listen to the rest of your podcasts. Well, I found you. them so interesting. And you, you do you do so much as well. And there's like there's always something to enjoy. Really exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really I'm so glad that we did this. Time. I hope you're okay that we took so long. But... Oh yeah. I mean, I, I was having such a great time. I would gladly do this again. Thank you, Sonny. Sure. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you have anything you'd like to share, you can email me at jewelsays at gmail.com. Oh, and I need to tell you that Sonny is working on her own podcast, and I will be sure to keep you posted when that's ready to launch. Have a lovely week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.